focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines here on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio today, we have our reporters in Handan and Son Mian. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Hello. Good to see you guys once again. Let me just switch over your uh, microphone over there. We're going to start things Thank off uh, this with an announcement by uh, South Korean Foreign Minister Park Jin this morning. Uh, this is something that we have been talking about for some quite time now. The plan to compensate the Korean victims of Japan's wartime force labor this in a bid to resolve the long-disputed issues and uh, hopefully improve ties with Japan as well. Start us off, Mian, and what were some of the key takeaways from the announcement this morning? Yes, so today at a press conference on Monday this morning, um, Foreign Minister Park Jin said the Foundation for Victims of Forced Mobilization will make the first move to compensate the Korean victims of forced labor during the Japanese colonial occupation as per a plan laid out by the Korean government on Monday regarding the Supreme Court's ruling in 2018. Now, when this proposal was raised in January, it sparked backlash from victims and their families because it did not include any contributions from Japanese companies, including those ordered by South Korean courts to pay reparations. According to today's announcement, um, Japanese companies will not be expected to make any payments under the plan, but would be would not be blocked from donating if they want, said Japanese Foreign Minister Yoshimisa Hayashi. Regarding criticism that Seoul's offer lacks direct participation uh, by the accused Japanese companies, Minister Park, and this is direct quote from Minister, saying that if we compare it to a glass of water, I think the glass is more than half full, and I think the glass will feel more depending on the heartfelt response from Japan that follows, unquote. He further expressed hope that the Japanese government will offer a comprehensive apology and the Japanese firms will make voluntary contributions to the foundation and promise that the families of victims would be consulted one by one in order to get their understanding sincerely. Yeah, so even though there is sort of this preliminary agreement in place right now, now the big question is going to be whether or not the victims' families are going to say, all right, we'll also look at this with the glass half full because I think the consensus right now is, listen, it's going to take two to tangle right now. You need also the Japanese side to also compensate the victims of the forced labor because it doesn't seem like a proper apology if the Japanese companies don't get involved with it, if the uh, Japanese government doesn't get involved with it, and it's only South Korea, then certainly if you are a optimist, you can say that it's glass half full. But I think most people are saying that it seems like it's glass half empty right now. Well, the thing is, the reason why... Uh, the Japanese government, of course, refuses to take part in this, uh, nor does any of the Japanese companies, is because they feel that everything has been normalized through the 1965 Seoul-Tokyo Agreement. Now, this is the argument that has been put in place. Of course, that argument has been highly controversial, according to South Korea. Tan, give us a recap on this agreement and a brief chronicle of the major events that followed after that. Sure. So let me give you a brief history um, on uh, related issues. In June 1965, some 20 years after Korea's liberation from Japan, Seoul and Tokyo normalized diplomatic ties and signed what was called a post-war claims settlement agreement. And through the agreement, Japan granted South Korea $300 million and another $200 million 
in loans. Now, the money uh, was spent by major South Korean firms like POSCO, KT and KTNG, uh, as well as public institutions like Korea Expressway Corporation and Korea Railroad. The settlement funds were also used in building Korea's major expressways. Uh, And here comes the important part. The agreement stipulated that it confirms that the issue of claims by the Korean state and the people has been completely and finally resolved. Now, this particular phrase in the agreement has led to numerous controversies and lawsuits that followed throughout the years. Now, at the center of contention was whether the agreement signed between two states invalidates an individual's right to make a claim against the Japanese government. In 2005, the previous uh, Nomuhyun administration created a government civil joint committee to look exclusively into that very question. And after seven months of thorough review, they concluded that it's difficult and inappropriate to request Japan for a separate legal compensation for the wartime forced labor. The government said that although individuals have the right to claims, it's difficult to exercise the right due to the Seoul Tokyo Agreement. And this had been the leading consensus for nearly a decade in Korea. But uh, both the Korean government and courts stuck to this stance that the wartime forced labor compensations have been dealt with through the 1965 agreement. But in 2012 came a landmark reversal of this stance. The Supreme Court returned a landmark damages case on forced labor victims to a lower court for retrial in favor of the victims, saying that the Seoul Tokyo post-war agreement does not extinguish individual right to claims. The chief judge at that time was Supreme Court Justice Kim Nung-hwan, who later said that he wrote the judgment with a mind akin to establishing or re-establishing a nation. Since then, the Supreme Court has delayed uh, the re-appeal for six years, during which there were numerous controversies with regards to the issue. And in October 2018, the Supreme Court, led by Chief Justice Kim Myung-soo, confirmed the 2012 ruling, finalizing the landmark reversal and ordering responsible Japanese firms, Nippon Steel and uh, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, to compensate the Korean victims. Japan was quick to react, slapping export curbs on South Korea in retaliation, and Seoul-Tokyo relations have hit fresh lows during most of the previous uh, Moon Jae-in administration. The Korean government has officially confirmed uh, nearly 219,000 Koreans as victims of Japan's forced labor. And from 2007 to 2015, over 610 billion won has been granted to some 72,000 victims. Now, there are several other forced labor damage cases still waiting for the Supreme Court's ruling. So we'll have to see how similar cases will be resolved in the future. And uh, as we have predicted uh, this afternoon, protesters held a rally against uh, South Korea's announcement of the plans to compensate the victims of Japan's wartime wartime labor. Uh, This outside the foreign ministry in Seoul. Again, the big controversy is, once again, if it is the Japanese companies that were on the wrong, why is it that it's the South Korean side that's compensating the victims is what it is. And so we knew that there was going to be some kind of protest in view of this decision here. Let's get more on this, Myun. 
Yes, so a strong backlash against the government announcement by Foreign Minister Park Jin was more or less expected. Uh, members of progressive activist groups staged a rally in front of the foreign ministry, protesting over South Korean government's solution for addressing the issue of compensation for Japan's wartime forced labor. Now, various victim support groups, including the Korea-Japan History and Peace Action, also plan to hold a candlelight rally on every Sunday. Now, victim support groups have strongly criticized the third-party payer method, where Korean companies fund the compensation for victims as diplomatic humiliation and an act of mocking victims who have dedicated their entire lives to receive an apology from Japan. They also argue that it is no different from giving the perpetrator amnesty, stating that the government has surrendered judicial sovereignty by itself, despite the Korean judiciary acknowledging Japan's wrongdoing and awarding compensation. One of the victims of forced labor during the Japanese colonial era, Ms. Yang Gumdok, who watched the government's announcement at the office of the Citizens Group for Forced Mobilization by Japan in Seogu, Gwangju, took a firm stance on the government's third-party reimbursement plan and said that she will not accept any money given like a beggar, and she highly stressed that a proper apology must come first before solving everything else. And as we have have said on almost every time we talked about this, it's going to be ultimately whether or not the victims and the victims' families are going to be okay with this compensation plan. We knew from the very start that the Japanese side, the Japanese side kind of made it clear from like the very start, which is why I was kind of always wondering how they were going to come up with a plan two, or if there was a second plan, because they said, we're not going to get involved. It's all up to the South Korean government to come up with some kind of plan. We're not going to do anything. We've done our part by agreeing to the 1965 uh, Normalization Treaty, and uh, we're not going to put in any more of that stuff. Uh, South Korean side said, well, 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 we'll still talk about it. And then it almost felt like as if there were going to be some kind of miraculous plan where the Japanese side was also going to get involved. Uh, we also had talks with our Professor Lee Hee-an uh, not too long ago, who said, they're in a rare case that potentially the Japanese government could also issue an apology. That would be the best case. Unfortunately, that's not it right now. And I know that there's been some naysayers about the victims and the victim's family. They're saying that they're only doing this so that they could get more money out of this. That doesn't seem like according to at least what Ms. Yang Duck said, because I think the most important thing is not the money right now, it's the proper apology. And the first thing is, if the Japanese side doesn't come up with a compensation, from the get-go, there is no apology. They don't feel remorseful of their actions right now. Of course, another thing of all this, money is secondary. The first thing right now is apology. The government, Japanese government has not issued any sincere apology right now. But Tan, how did Japan react to today's announcement? I'm sure they're quite happy with the results of this. Well, yeah, Japanese Foreign Minister uh, Fumio, uh, no, Prime Minister rather, Fumio Kishida assessed South Korea's new solution as an effort to restore Seoul-Tokyo ties to healthy relations. He said that South Korea is an important neighboring country to cooperate with in tackling various global issues and challenges. Uh, but there were no direct words like a sincere apology.
apology or deep regret to past aggressions. Uh, but um, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida did say that his administration will stand by Japan's previous government's stance regarding the forced labor issue. Speaking at a key parliamentary session today, Kishida said that his administration would uphold the position articulated by previous cabinets on the view of historical issues and will continue to do so. Uh, if we look back in 1995, then-Japanese Prime Minister Tomichi Murayama issued a statement that read, Japan caused tremendous damage and suffering to the people of many countries, particularly to those of Asian nations, during, his coloni- uh, during its colonial rule and aggression, expressing his feelings of deep remorse and heartfelt apology. Now, this has been mentioned by successive Japanese cabinets as the government's basic stance. And the Murayama statement was renewed in 1998 when uh, then-South Korean President Kim Dae-jung and Japanese Prime Minister Keizo Obuchi announced partnership toward the 21st century, vowing to overcome the unfortunate past and walk toward future-oriented ties based on reconciliation and amicable relations. And today, Kishida has said that his administration will uphold such previous government stance. He added that he will continue close communication with President Yoon and enhance Seoul-Tokyo relations. He also reiterated the need to boost South Korea, Japan, U.S. trilateral ties. So there were no uh, direct words like uh, a sincere apology or deep regret, but he did make clear that he will succeed uh, the Japanese government's previous stance. And uh, Japanese Foreign Minister Yoshi Masahayashi also echoed his remarks, saying that Japan upholds previous government stance, including the 1998 Kim Obuchi announcement. And when asked about any changes in Japan's stance, that there is no apology nor compensation from responsible Japanese firms regarding the compensation, Hayashi said, there is no change in that Tokyo will continue close talks with Seoul based on Japan's consistent Stance. So it looks like uh, the Japanese government has no intention of uh, encouraging Japanese firms or or whatsoever to take part in this uh, third party fund that Korea is trying to create. And on um, the question of whether uh, Japan will allow Japanese firms participation in the third party fund, he said Korea's newly announced solution does not require Japan's participation and the government has no particular stance on private companies' voluntary donations at home or abroad. Meanwhile, today's announcement was welcomed by uh, uh, by the U.S. with President Biden, calling it a groundbreaking new chapter. He said Seoul and Tokyo are making important steps towards co-prosperity of both nations. Secretary of State Antony Blinken also hailed the new solution, labeling it a historical, a historic announcement. Yeah, and as we mentioned last week, I mean, the one, the one party that's very happy with the results of this is going to be the United States, right? Because this has been the one thing that's been holding the trilateral cooperation between the three sides, South Korea, the United States, and Japan. And U.S. always sort of needed this close cooperation with South Korea and Japan in order to make this trilateral cooperation work against China and North Korea. But it was kind of on the limbo uh, during the previous administration. But again, um, it's interesting with the two sides right now. So the South Korean side also said that, you know, they're open to having the Japanese companies uh, donate if they want to. The Japanese government says, well, we're not going to push them to do it anything. So probably highly unlikely that's not going to happen. But Again, compensation, uh, you know, apology from the, I think the Japanese side is one thing. Uh, apology from the Japanese government is one thing. But 
Again, you also need the apology from the firms, right? The companies that are responsible for the forced labor. We're talking about uh, Nippon Steel. We're talking about Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. And so that is the other controversy with this. And I would not be surprised if maybe down the road, uh, it could be in the next administration or the following administration, depending on when the uh, ne next administration will become a liberal, uh, liberal administration. It's going to be like 2015 agreement once again, where the next liberal agree uh, administration is probably going to scrap it again and say, oh, well, back to square one once again. We don't accept it. And as you know, then uh, relations with Japan will, of course, sour. Uh, besides the plan to raise local civilian funds to compensate the victims of forced labor, the UN administration uh, also taking a step forward in improving ties with Japan with a strong determination to mend the frayed ties with Japan and uh, solidify security cooperation. So, Mian, tell us more about this. Yes, yeah, so that's right. Um, Minister Park's announcement today highlighted that the plan was key to improving ties between Tokyo and Seoul, which had been deteriorated in recent years due to the Supreme Court ruling in 2018 over the compensation case that we have been talking so far. With the announcement made today, the South Korean and Japanese governments are said to have found a common ground by taking measures practically at simultaneous time, with Japan lifting its export control measures against South Korea and South Korea filing a lawsuit against Japan at the World Trade Organization. A senior official from the presidential office said there will be government-level measures regarding the lifting of of export controls and the purpose is to speed up measures to enhance economic and security cooperation to resolve historical issues. Another official from the presidential office said that the conflict was caused by the Moon Jae-in government, but South Korea can withdraw its lawsuit against Japan if Japan lifts its export control measures. And indeed, it is said that South Korea and Japan have decided to suspend the WTO dispute settlement process while export control consultations are underway. Yeah, and so that was the thing that we were expecting was going to happen uh, following this sort of agreement in that, yeah, Japan will probably add South Korea back on the white list of its trading partners. Let's move on here. National Security Advisor Kim Jong-un, uh, he is over in Washington, D.C. Uh, to set the stage for a South Korea-U.S. summit. Also, there's a number of various issues of mutual interest that uh, he and his uh, counterparts and uh, top officials were in discussion over. Tan, uh, what do we know so far during his uh, trip there? Well, first of all, um, regarding South Korea's big announcement on its new solution to Japan's wartime forced labor issue, Kim said that the U.S. has been showing a great interest on the matter and that uh, he hopes the new solution could bring Seoul and Tokyo closer together, which in turn could pave the way towards an upgraded and a more comprehensive trilateral relations between South Korea, the U.S., and Japan. Now, when asked about whether South Korea-Japan summit is a prerequisite to South Korea-U.S. summit, he said relations among the three nations are closely connected, but uh, clarified that there are no conditions for bilateral summits to be held. He said South Korea-U.S. summit and South Korea-Japan summit will be dealt with separately. Um, but that's not the main issue he'll be discussing with his U.S. counterparts. At the center of attention is the highly controversial conditions to get U.S. US government subsidies. <clears throat> 
excuse me, stipulated in the U.S. CHIPS Act. Kim said his meetings in Washington will address Korean businesses' concerns about the U.S. CHIPS Act subsidy that requires very strict conditions. Uh, remember, it, um, it required companies to share extra profit mm-hmm. if there was any. And it also requires South Korean firms to allow access to mm-hmm. uh, key semiconductor technologies. Uh, and so uh, this, it became a highly controversial issue. And he told reporters upon arrival in, in the U.S. that um, although South Korea and the U.S. are allies, their goals and priorities may differ. He vowed to seek ways to minimize damage in Korean firms, adding that he will assess the impact, uh, whether it be positive or negative. Uh, He was also asked about Ford's announcement last month that it'll build a battery plant in Michigan by licensing technologies from China's CATL. And this issue caused some concerns of discrimination and favoritism towards U.S. firms. And with regards to this, Kim said there were some disparities between related reports and said uh, it's important to find out the truth. Uh, Meanwhile, he also will set the stage, uh, finalize the timing and level of President Yoon's upcoming visit to Washington, set the tone for uh, uh, Yoon-Biden summit. He also said he plans to discuss with his uh, White House counterpart Jake Sullivan and other U.S. foreign and security officials on ways to strengthen the alliance and coordinate over North Korea's nuclear threat. At the top of the agenda, of course, boosting extended U.S. deterrence. Now, moving on here, uh, we're going to be talking extensively in regards to this uh, in the second hour of the program as well. But uh, we're going to be getting just a bit of the key points here. Uh, yesterday, we had China's National People's Congress kick off its annual gatherings over in Beijing. Uh, you had the outgoing premier, Li Keqiang, outlining key economic targets for the year, uh, emphasizing and prioritizing economic stability above all Certainly has been a very unprecedented time for China. Uh, Not only was it just globally, but China as well. We saw their economy contract at record speed. Mian, tell us about uh, China's plans for its economic expansion now that uh, they're done and over with with the whole uh, zero COVID uh, policy there. Yes, so on Sunday at the opening of the annual gathering of the National People's Congress, which draws nearly 3,000 delegates to Beijing, um, outgoing Premier Li Keqiang set this year's economic growth target at around 5% as it seeks to revive the world's second largest economy after a year of tepid growth because of pandemic measures. If achieved, the target would represent a recovery from growth of just 3% in 2022 after numerous Chinese cities suffered extended lockdowns in an effort to prevent the spread of the Omicron coronavirus variant. Now, looking at uh, some of the projections for China's economic growth target by major investment banks, um, for example, Goldman Sachs giving China 6.5%, Morgan Stanley 5.7%, and Nomura Investment Bank 5.3%. China has certainly set a conservative economic growth target despite positive early year economic indicators. Now, many observe that this is mainly because China's leadership is still concerned about economic recovery, which may have influenced the decision to set a very conservative economic growth target. And some experts predict that it will not be easy for China to set a growth target of over 6% in the future, indicating concern concerns about the country's low growth trend. Like, as you know, uh, despite the fact that Chinese President Xi Jinping is on his third term, uh, it's not 
the Chinese citizens who are voting for the president, right? It's a different political system that they have over there. Uh, and so the consensus right now is that uh, Xi Jinping has not been a very popular leader uh, amongst the people. So it would be devastating if, let's say, his people, uh, his government sets a target of 6% and they're not able to meet it. So instead, where they're going is they're being a little bit cautious with this. Let's just kind of uh, estimate it down, go 5%. I mean, certainly it can't go below 5%. And then if it goes higher than that, they'll say, well, it exceeded uh, the expectations of 5% economic growth and everything is peachy from there, right? But what implications do these numbers have on Korea? Because certainly Korea, China, we have economic ties. Over and to the overall global economy as well. Yeah, so to put in short, to share a few numbers here, um, the Korea International Trade Association said China's reopening would add 0.16 percentage point to South Korea's growth rate of 1.6 to 1.7 percent predicted for this year. And China's easing of its zero COVID policy and reopening would also increase South Korea's trade volume by 0.55 percentage point this year. Now, China's economic slump has been pointed to as one of the reasons for South Korea's poor exports last year, uh, which came at a no surprise considering that um, China is Korea's largest trading partner. Um, according to Kita, um, the Chinese government's draconian zero-COVID policy caused Korea's economic growth rate to decline by 0.26 percentage point in 2022. If China's economic recovers from the second quarter of this year following the reopening policy, South Korea's exports would also increase, according to Kita. So to this extent, if China's economic growth rate declines, it will directly affect the economic growth rate of our country. Um, the Hyundai Research Institute previously stated that if China's economic growth rate drops by one percentage point, the Korean economic growth rate could face downward pressure of 0.5 percentage points. So with the new economic team coming into office, we'll see how China's economic activities will roll out and see its impact on a global scale going forward, such as in global supply chain and inflation overall worldwide. There you have it. So we're going to continue on with some economic news, this time back here in South Korea. South Korea's inflation figures uh, dropped to its lowest level in almost a year in the month of February. But electricity, gas and water rates continuing to soar, posting the largest increase on record. Tan, let's get the figures. Sure. South Korea's inflation dropped last month to the lowest level in 10 months and a decline in the prices of oil and agricultural products, although utility prices continued an upward trend. According to Statistics Korea, inflation was 4.8% last month, down from 5.2% in January. On month, the consumer price index increased 0.3%. The Bank of Korea analyzed that slower price growth for livestock and petroleum prices contributed to the drop in inflation. Prices for agricultural, livestock, and fishery products inched up 1.1% on-year, while those for industrial products, including gasoline and diesel, were up 5.1% during the same period. Uh, and inflation is projected to uh, continue to decline in March as well. The Bank of Korea predicted that the growth in consumer prices will likely fall considerably due to the base effects of the surge in international oil price in March uh, last year. But it maintained that consumer prices will likely exceed 
uh, the target level of 2% throughout this year, though the pace is expected to slow. And this, uh, while the prices for electricity, gas and water soared nearly 30% on year last month, up from 28.3% in January. The figure was the highest since the government began compiling relevant data in 2010. Rising utility bills remain a huge concern as the government plans to gradually increase the cost of public services. And this, while China's economic reopening may also fuel energy prices, uh, as well as Russia's uh, prolonged war on Ukraine. The BOK meets for its next rate-setting meeting in April and uh, soaring utility fees on top of slumping exports, slowing consumption and a shaky housing market are adding to its headache. Now, of course, um, I'm going to continue to talk about uh, uh, other stuff here domestically. Uh, We have currently this 52-hour workweek mandate, uh, which means that Overtime work cannot exceed 12 hours a week, uh, capping the total hours at work. Uh, this was certainly that was passed during the previous uh, Moon administration. And although some have kind of argued that the really has improved the labor standards and sort of set it on the right decision here, but the system sort of faced uh, criticism mainly from employers, also from the current UN administration who wants to really make this labor reform system put in place here. Uh, let's get the latest because it does seem like we're going to be seeing some significant changes. Uh, Mian, you have more on this. Yes. Yeah, so as we know, uh, many South Korean business struggle to handle the extended labor that is managed weekly by law. So manufacturers and particularly um, small and medium-sized companies have been requesting some flexibility, especially during peak seasons. Uh, some say that they had to turn away orders or hire more workers due to the restrictions on working hours. Like for example, at R&D centers and game developers, uh, they have um, inevitably very long area of work that should be done swiftly before new products are brought to the market. And they have complained that the current limit to weekly based work hours hindered them from accelerating the pace to launch new products and avoiding disadvantages in the global market. Um, such complaining voices are echoed widely across shipbuilders with a growing volume of orders being placed and air conditioners manufacturers who's work schedule is only busy in a particular season of the year. So then with the new measures proposed by the government, if extended labor is counted every month or a longer unit period than the current weekly system, then many parts of these issues can be tackled then. Yes, that's right. So the revision will allow companies to manage over time, not only weekly, but on a monthly, quarterly, half yearly or yearly basis so that employers can choose more hours during weeks with heavy workloads and fewer hours during weeks with less work. So managing total work hours on a monthly, quarterly, biannual or annual basis mean that the weekly work hours can vary each week. The hours may increase during busy periods and decrease during slower periods. So in this system, it will be possible to work up to a maximum of 69 hours per week during busy periods. The government will also adopt a new sabbatical month system in which a worker can save overtime work hours as paid leave days so that they can 
can be used consecutively with annual paid leave days. And furthermore, the choice of break time will also be strengthened. Now, currently, according to the Labor Standards Act, um, employees must take a break of at least 30 minutes after working for four hours and at least one hour after working for eight hours. Now, under these regulations, it has been reported that some workplaces have faced unreasonable situations where employees who have worked for only four hours from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., for example, want to leave immediately after their work, but have to take a 30-minute break and leave at 1.30 p.m. And in response, the government has introduced a procedure that allows employees to apply for exemption from a 30-minute break and leave work when their daily working time is only four hours. Now, this is only highlighting a few revisions from the government's attempts to overhaul the 52-work-hour system package, of which require changes to the law. However, it is is expected that the plan will face difficulties passing in the National Assembly as opposition parties such as the Democratic Party of Korea and the Justice Party, which hold a majority of the seats, are against the government's reform plan. Yeah, especially the Justice Party would have uh, strong words on that. Uh, we're going to finish things off on a positive note here. We've been talking about for months uh, South Korea's sort of uh, trade deficits. Um, Certainly uh, still seeing some deficit, but at least on the exports, this sector is doing mighty fine. Now we're talking about the K-contents industry. South Korea earned record surplus from exports of K-contents last year thanks to the undying love for K-pop, K-dramas, you name it. Uh, Tan, finish us off. Uh, what do we have for this? Well, South Korea earned 1.7 billion U.S. dollars from exports of music, videos and related services last year, posting a record surplus in content exports, according to the Bank of Korea. Exports of K-contents last year saw a nearly 48% rise from $1.2 billion the year before, thanks to the popularity of K-pop sensations BTS and Blackpink, as well as growing number of viewers of Korean TV shows on OTT platforms such as Extraordinary Attorney Woo. During the same period, Korea's import of cultural products uh, reached $467 million, a near 10% rise from $421 million the year before. The surplus uh, in the category topped $1.2 billion, the highest since 2006. The government is going all out. It's providing full-scale support for production of Korean content to help the content industry increase revenues to 30 trillion won by 2027, according to a five-year plan announced by the Culture Ministry recently. Now, these surpluses are predicted to continue as global corporations such as Disney Plus and Apple TV are joining hands in making Korean content um, on the back of their uh, the success on Netflix. And according to CNN, Netflix will release 34 Korean shows this year. The platform uh, released 25 shows in 2022 and 15 in 2021. All right. Uh, certainly feels like uh, that industry is going to continue to soar here. And I'm sure all of our listeners out there have been enjoying a lot of these contents that have come down. Uh, nevertheless, guys, as always, thank you very much for coming in today with your reports. Please stay safe and we'll see you guys again. Thank you. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application. 
or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.